Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. Welcome to the inaugural edition of CDT's Tech Talk, where we chat up the smartest people in tech policy to go beyond the headlines while doing our very best to avoid acronyms. We can do it. I'm Brian Wozolowski, and it's time to talk tech policy. This week, we'll explore what constitutes a true threat in the online world and what the Supreme Court has to say about it and will help you take better control of your digital legacy that you will leave behind when you die. A bit morbid, perhaps, but trust me, this is something you should be thinking about. The laws managing what happens to your digital assets are vague to non-existent, but that doesn't mean you can't take steps to manage your digital legacy. I have CDT's very own Ellie Lang here with me today, and she's going to discuss how you can take control of your digital legacy. And in fact, she developed a guide that is online at www.cdt.org um, that tells you just how to do that. Welcome, Allie. How are you? Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. So good to see you. We get to talk every day, but rarely do we get to talk and get be recorded. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, it's kind of fun. So your piece came out just a few weeks ago, and it really resonated with me. Um, partially, I had a friend, because I had a, a very good friend who passed away far too soon. And when he passed away, his mother um, took control of his Facebook account. And at first, it was kind of nice. You know, it was a memorial page for him, um, and everyone was posting things. But then she got a little bit weird and creepy and started friending people and commenting on different posts, posts as though she were my friend. And I ended up having to unfriend him, which is kind of sad. But then at the same time, I just know that this is not something that he would have wanted to happen to his Facebook account. And I'm certain he didn't think about that um, before passing away. Is this a common thing? Yeah, it's interesting. As, since I've started working on this issue, I hear stories like that a lot. Um, and the hardest thing about it is that you can't really accuse grieving parents of misconduct. Even, right. And so it's really difficult because as heart-wrenching as that situation is for people where, you know, maybe somebody's name keeps popping up in your email or your Facebook or your, your words with friends or somewhere where you sort of, you know, weren't expecting it, their name pops up again um, as someone else is taking control of their phone, typically, or their computer. Uh, it's really, really hard, and then there's sort of nothing you can do except, like you said, unfriend people, um, which is tragic because now you've lost access to that person's account. Absolutely. So what, I mean, I guess what you were writing about is really what someone should do to make sure that that doesn't happen, so that their wishes are understood before they die and you end up in a situation like that. What, you know, are there laws that govern this? Govern this? Are there things that people should be thinking about right now? Yeah, I would say that, you know, I think your, your comment and what we've titled our project, Everybody Dies, really encompasses how complicated this is. And every community grieves differently. There are norms you can look to, you know, about your own community. Do you grieve publicly? Do you grieve quietly? And sort of think about the best way for you to honor those traditions through your social media and through your online accounts. Um, the law is unclear, and I wouldn't rely on it to do what you want um, because everybody's needs are so tailored, and that's partly because we're all individuals, but also because the vast variety of accounts, like, as you were saying, between email, social media, dating, and, you know, even just things like your Amazon account can be somewhat revealing in different contexts. My mom does not need to know what I purchased on Amazon it's a really, or no one, how much I spent on it. That would be disappointing yeah, to her, I Yeah, no think. one needs to know that except <laughs> Amazon, apparently. So, yeah, it's, it's really interesting if, just to take a quick mental survey of how much stuff you have, quote-unquote, lying around in the ether. 
and really think about who you want to to see it, if anyone, and then see if that website has a way for you to make your preferences known, or you, you can just write it down. Well, I mean, so I would imagine there's a ton of different ways that you could go about doing this. I mean, and it would be different for any platform you're on, whether it's email. Gosh, I mean, I would like, you know, maybe a Roomba to go in and clean up my email and make that disappear. I just looked this morning, I have over 10,000 messages in my inbox of my personal Gmail account. Um, but then I may think differently about, you know, who I want to have access to my Facebook. I mean, I think I use Facebook mostly to store pictures from travel, and I know, you know, heck, if something were to happen to me, my mom would want access to that. How do you go about sorting so many different types of content? How do you even make sense of it? It seems overwhelming. Yeah, it is, and I think that that's a good point. I would start by just doing it when you think of it. You know, when you're on Facebook, you know, like for you, you were prompted by your your friend's passing, right? So that gives you a moment to say, well, I wonder if I've made plans. And I think we've done this historically forever with, you know, wills and things. If you lose your parents, you're suddenly like, oh my gosh, I better get my life in order, you know, to make right. sure that it's easier for the next round. And so it's just one of those things where when you're thinking of it, you know, make an election. And with, with Gmail and Facebook, um, they both have in-suite tools that allow you to sort of make some choices from a few finite options. And they're pretty granular and they're good options, um, but it makes it easier for the company to execute your wishes because they've sort of narrowed down the field of what can happen. What sort of options do people have? So Gmail's a really interesting one. They call it Inactive Account Manager. So if you search Google Inactive Account Manager, it'll come up. And um, in that case, you decide the length of time your account has to be inactive before the steps kick in. So for me, I chose like seven months. If I haven't logged into my Gmail for seven months, I'm dead or like out of the. That I mean, would be sad. I we would all email. be really, really sad. I check my email like a crazy person. So seven months seemed like a really generous window. Um, you know, then you decide if you want your if you want somebody to get access, you could put a couple ways to contact them. Uh, you set designate what you want access to. So for my personal case, I actually just said outright delete the chat history. Um, chat didn't feel like something to me that I want to pass on. Those felt almost like phone conversations to me. They felt more, you know, ephemeral and not like something I really need people to remember me by. <laughs> um, so those I said get rid of, whereas emails felt more to me like letters, right? And again, it's person by person. It's how you use a service. And so to me, I wanted my best friend to have access to those. And then uh, you have a choice. So I gave my best friend, we'll get an email seven months after my account's inactive saying, you know, you've been given access to like this and this, this and this, and um, once Google does that, I've asked them to please delete it from their server. So that's oh, the last step as you decide to delete, if you want them to keep it or delete it, ultimately. Um, and that's interesting because I'm curious in the long run, you know, Google will have just a huge amount of historic data, and, and it will be interesting what they can and, dis and will decide to do with it. I mean, I think if you say you get to keep it, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I imagine that means it's theirs. Um, yeah. No, it's fascinating when you, you bring up that point. The fact is there is so much information being created and we're still kind of at the early stages when you look at history in terms of collecting this sort of data and the sort of records that people keep online. They chronicle their lives. And I think you wrote in your post that they are sort of writing their own history in a way that was never done before. Um, so I think it will be fascinating to see you know, what they do with that. So if you had a piece of advice to someone that really wants to take control of their digital legacy, what are the things, like what are a couple of concrete steps that they should do right now? Um, it's the hardest step is to figure out how much, how many accounts you have and where they are. So take a mental, quick mental survey of where you store things, what services you use. And I think that really interrogate yourself as far as um, 
what's in those communications. That's not just for your own security, but for others. So for example, maybe I don't mind if my mom, and this is true actually, I don't really mind if my mom has access to my email because I know that she would never go looking for trouble. I maybe right. don't want my friend's moms to have access to emails I've written to them. Right, and so you really can think about that from the reverse perspective. Like think about all the communications you've had with your friends in confidence. If you're a person in a special privilege, if you're a clergy member mm. or a, a sponsor um, for an addiction program or a counselor or something where you've had very, very sensitive communications, I would make sure that's factored into your decision because that's, that's a huge deal. Those confidences were made, you know, in good faith. Wow. Yeah, that's true. A lot of things aren't happening necessarily in person anymore. They're happening in a way that's recorded. What about things like passwords? I mean, you mentioned that Gmail has a system, Facebook has a system. What about sites without systems? You know, I'm doubting that like certain banks have thought through this or, um, you know, dating sites we mentioned before. You know, should you share your passwords with people? Should you store them someplace that they're accessible? What's a way to go about that? So don't put them in your will, because wills are eventually public, and so you don't want oh. your whole password <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> out, out, in, out in the password history out there. Um, I think with passwords, the thing to think about is um, where you want to write them down. And, and to be honest, my suspicion is what happens a lot is people, when they die, are just logged into stuff on their home computer or on their phone, and someone then immediately has whatever they're logged into. Um, if you're in that position, so if you get possession of your, your parent's computer or something, and you open it up and you find that accounts are logged in, don't just accept that. Um, if you want access to those things, you need to change the password to something you know, because if you get logged out and you weren't granted access mm. legally, it's not clear that you can get Gmail or get Google or Facebook to let you in, actually. Um, that's again where the law is unclear and that will depend on where you are and when you know where things are at. But um, So once if you're on the other end where you've received something, be sure that when you have access, if you want to keep it, which I guess you should also maybe, you know, question your motives if you think it would be in the honor, like in, in accordance with what your loved ones would want. Um, make sure that you change those passwords to something that you know. <laughs> That's something to keep in mind. But I think in general with passwords, if you write them down and hide them and then say in your will where you've hidden them, um, you're allowed legally to give your password to absolutely anybody you want to. The, com the companies don't have to worry then. If you've given your password, to somebody and they access your account, that's that's an authorized access. The password is sort of the key. I mean, it's like you've given keys mm. to someone, right? Yeah. So that really is actually a pretty good way to make sure that, um, just in sort of a broad stroke, that people have access to your accounts. Yeah, it's, it sounds a lot like making sure, you know, when people used to lock things up in a safe in their house. Yeah. Make sure the know. combination is around. Exactly, yeah. exactly, so that you could do that. You know, um, when my grandmother died a bit ago, my parents went through, you know, their house and were finding photographs and all that sort of stuff. And I imagine that as we move forward, people are going to be wanting to do the same thing in the different email accounts and the Facebook accounts. There's going to be that joy of remembering and discovering things from the past and this. But gosh, it is surely a different world when you have to think about what you need to clean out and what you have to manage and what you have to prepare for. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, for most people, I think that they want their loved ones to have access. And I think that's good. I mean, I'm not trying to say, like, you should never give someone access to your accounts when you die. I think you should if you want to. But I don't think it should be the default because there are a lot of people who don't have good relationships with their families. There are a lot of families who 
um, you know, are, are in some sort of conflict where the, the information that's in these accounts could be used as fuel. There's people who are just incredibly private or who have secrets from their families, and that's an okay way to live your life, too. That's so, like, right. it really depends on your own personal decisions, and I think everyone, that part of the trouble with trying to write a law about this is it really is such a personal choice, and what we need to do is figure out a way that's sort of privacy protecting by default, but does create sort of an obligation for companies to give access where it's rightfully uh, determined that you should have it. That makes a lot of sense, and that's why you titled your piece "Taking Care Digital Legacy, Taking Control of Your Digital Assets, something close to that. Thank you so much, Allie. It was great chatting. Any last parting thoughts you want to share? Um, nope. No? Nope. Well, that's perfect. You covered it all. <laughs> Always great chatting, and we hopefully will have you on Tech Talk again soon. Great. Thanks, Brian. Is that a jerkish Facebook post or a true threat? Recently, the Supreme Court heard a case in which the defendant, Anthony Alanis, was convicted under the Interstate Threat Statute for posting rap lyrics and other statements online that expressed violent thoughts and desires involving his estranged wife. No doubt these were offensive, but should these kinds of statements be legally considered true threats? The Center for Democracy and Technology, along with the ACLU, the National Coalition Against Censorship, and the Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression at Yale Law School. That's an impressive group there. All filed an amicus brief in the case. I'm joined now by CDT's Free Expression Director, Emma Alonso, who is going to tell us why CDT filed a brief, what the court decided, and of course, what it means. Welcome, Emma. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, you know, the first one is always the best one, so you're going to make it like rock star seller. Um, Emma, I really think that you probably have the hardest job here at CDT because leading the free expression work, so often we end up on the side of, you know, cases that are not necessarily the most appealing. And certainly this one, or at least the posts that Mr. Alanis posted, were not, you know, things that too many people would love to see. Um, but why did we? you know, file a brief in this. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's typically the case in uh, First Amendment law. You're never really dealing with um, easy cases. You're always kind of in the realm of more extreme speech or speech that seems to be really pushing the edge of what is part of our open and robust, you know, exchange and dialogue as a society and what maybe has crossed the line into something that the government can regulate. Right. Just because we don't like the speech doesn't mean it shouldn't be out there. Right, and it's really important to remember that when we're talking about something like the true threat statute, um, the question we're really asking is when can the government send a person to prison solely for having said something? Mm. And you know, there will be times when somebody has you know, incited imminent lawless action or you know, tried to um, directly threaten a person and with the full intention of put them in fear of their life or fear of their safety. Uh, and in those cases, you know, we do think it's reasonable to treat that kind of activity as a crime and to punish somebody. But there's a lot of speech that falls far short of that standard. And that's part of our um, you know, strong tradition of protecting the widest range of speech possible. Uh, so we were interested in this case because it was, for, for a number of reasons, but as you might have seen you know, the headlines about the case, a lot of a lot of the reporting on this was calling it the Facebook threats case, right? right? And what's going to happen with the, the Facebook threats? And everybody can kind of think of times that they've seen online communications that um, you know they were surprised by, shocked by, offended by. 
Uh, so I think there was a lot of scrutiny. I've defriended plenty of people because of things they posted. <laughs> Although I don't think I felt threatened yet, so that's probably good. Yeah, but, and social media gives us quite a view into the, the thoughts and opinions of people that we might, we might not have uh, <laughs> realized they held those opinions before. Um, and we're all sort of figuring out how to, to deal with that and how to um, respond you know, as individuals and as a society. Uh, but our concern in this case was um, we wanted to make sure that the court really understood the, the context of online speech. Because um, the, the question kind of at issue was what standard does the government have to prove to, um, to convict someone of having threatened a person? Does the government have to prove, as we were arguing, that that person intended to communicate a threat? Or um, does the government have to prove as the, the lower court held, only that a reasonable person would have thought that this statement was a threat. Oh, interesting. So it's really the difference between did the speaker intend to threaten or did the audience feel threatened? Um, and one of the big concerns that we've heard from a lot of prosecutors and a lot of people who were arguing for, for the lower standard, for the, the idea that if the audience feels threatened, that's enough to build a case on. Um, you hear a lot of concerns that you know the internet's a wild west. There's so little context on for online communication. People are posting under pseudonyms or they're posting anonymously, and and how are you ever supposed to divine the you know the real thoughts and, and intent of a speaker? Um, it's just setting too high of a bar for prosecution. And what we wanted to help the court understand is that there's actually a lot to online communication that can help show you the context, can help show you what a particular speaker and the choices that they were making was intending. Um, and so that, you know, that there is enough for prosecution to potentially build a case. What are some examples of that? Is it like, you know, the different platforms that you posted on? I mean, I guess Facebook's a good example. If I were to threaten someone and not tag them in it, or if I were to threaten someone and tag them in it, in it is that right. two different, you know, one clearly shows my intent to threaten them, one may just be me venting. That's, yeah, exactly. Um, there's so many different choices that, if you want to, you know, if you want to express your frustration with me, online. I've never been frustrated with you, Emma. <laughs> You've got so many different options there, right? You could send an email to your friend talking about me. You could um, post on Facebook, but we're not friends and I don't see that. You could tweet about it to the world, or you could send that communication directly to me. Mm -hmm. um, each of those things sort of reveals a different idea that you might be having about who, who are you trying to express this message to? Um, and if you're not trying to express the message to me, saying that you were intending to, to make me feel threatened, I think is a pretty difficult case to make. Um, so there, there are things that speakers do to kind of... that. What happens when you then amplify it, though? Is there an angle? I mean, a lot of the things, when you look at it, at least social media, the amplification effect you know, if someone retweets me, which, I mean, let's be honest, rarely happens, but there are times that things do go viral, and perhaps to places that I certainly didn't even intend, you know, whether it be a tweet or you name it, but the platform, if it does take off, does that change the case for courts? Should that factor into it? That was another key point that we were trying to, to emphasize to the court, that the reason the um, reasonable audience standard, kind of the reasonable person does the audience feel threatened standard for, for prosecuting these cases 
could really raise a big risk for, for chilling freedom of expression online. Because you as a speaker, you know, you might take some steps to target your message at a particular audience, but ultimately it's pretty easy for other people to take your comments out of context and to, to decontextualize and to take them out of that, you know, clear targeting just to a circle of your closest friends and share them with the world. Mm -hmm. Either, you know, retweet them to thousands of more followers than you might have or um, take a screenshot and post it on another website entirely. That's right, even Snapchat even can't go away now if you do that little sc you know, screenshot on the phone. It's too easy where you hold those buttons, so yeah. you have to be careful and that, I mean, that. that's the, the key with digital communications. It's so easy for different parts of your audience to um, to take your, your communications into new audiences that you have no idea about. It means that a speaker would really be kind of you know, in a, a very difficult position of if I if I want to make sure that no reasonable person in my audience could could think this is a threat, but I don't even know who my audience might be. Right. How you know that that does not give speakers really much of a sense of how they can possibly stay on the right side of the law. Um, so we really wanted to emphasize to the court that you know it, it's not that there's no way to understand kind of the nitty gritty of um, online communications, but really to drive home that it's you know if we're look, talking about criminal law, we need to ensure that a person actually is aware of the facts that you know that make them culpable of a crime. So the Supreme Court took the case. They heard it. They came out with a decision. I'm sure they agreed with us, right? <laughs> sort of. Okay. <laughs> um, we so we and and a number of commentators were considering this case a you know a First Amendment case and making arguments about what does the First Amendment require in terms of this this knowledge standard in a criminal law, but the court, as it is very. Uh, likely to do decided to avoid the constitutional question. They always they like to stop short of having to opine on on matters of constitutional interpretation if they can, and looked at it purely as kind of a statutory interpretation question. And we're looking specifically at you know at this federal statute that defines what um, what the crime of sending a threatening communication is. What does that statute require in terms of knowledge on the part of the speaker? And they kind of broke it down into um, two components to the statute that you have to know that you transmitted a communication and you had to know that the communication contained a threat. And in doing this, in sort of breaking this down and, and putting it in the from the perspective of the speaker and what the speaker has to know, they did strike down the or reverse the lower court's holding that um, a reasonable person standard was appropriate. So the, um, the, the Third Circuit had uh, upheld a, a decision where a jury was instructed to decide would a reasonable audience have thought that this statement was a threat, and the court did clearly say, no, that standard is too low. It's got to be what does the speaker intend. But there's still some some uncertainty and some lack of clarity there um, because they didn't the court did not precisely pin down exactly what the knowledge standard is. Um, so I'm sure we'll end up seeing some you know some more cases around this uh, this statute, looking at you know if a speaker is speaking recklessly, they you know they have some awareness that what they're saying could or you know would likely be understood as a threat by another person, is that enough or do you need to get, um, does the government need to demonstrate the highest standard 
that they, they the person, the speaker themselves, intended a person to feel threatened. So for courts that do get cases like this in the future, likely there's going to be more new ground broken on it. It's not I think settled. So, yeah, then that, that fundamental question of what is required by the First Amendment in terms of a, a knowledge standard um, for the crime of threatening someone is still, it's in the same sort of unresolved place where you have some circuits um, taking the, the very highest standard uh, and others, you know, allowing for, for more of this recklessness. Um. Well, the internet sure is changing the way that threats happen, and this is a fascinating topic, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Um, and we hope to have you back on again very, very soon. I'm sure we'll have some um, more unsavory cases to talk about, but always fun chatting. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's CDT Tech Talk. Thanks for listening. If there's topics you want us to discuss in the future, feel free to send us a tweet at SendemTech or hit us up on Facebook. Until next week, I'm Brian.